Hello, I'm Sheila Hamilton and welcome to Beyond Well. We've gathered up the most compelling episodes we've done on grief. As you may know, we are commemorating the milestone of releasing more than 200 episodes of our show. We've been so honored to be named in the top 1% of all podcasts and we couldn't have done it without you and the incredible support of our sponsors. Before we get started, we'd like to thank Active Recovery TMS for their support of our show. TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation and with neighborhood offices to make it so convenient convenient for you, Active Recovery TMS is your choice for transcranial magnetic stimulation in the Pacific Northwest. Active Recovery TMS has recently begun adding therapeutic sessions as well. And for more information or to find out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. Beyond Well, highlighting past episodes dealing with complicated grief. This week, Dr. Jim Polo. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and I hope that you have enjoyed this incredible series that we were able to accomplish with the help of our partners at Fora Health. Dr. Jim Polo is also a board member at Fora Health, and he's here today to talk with me about an incident that is very personal and also very traumatic. My nephew was found dead in San Diego and our family assumes it was an overdose because he has suffered with addiction for more than a decade. He was in and out of recovery centers and sober living centers and the court system. And he never really related to himself as the kind of promising and smart young man that all of us saw. He really saw himself after a while as a person who was an addict. And I learned this news after returning from a funeral for my mother who died of COVID complications. And I have just been thinking this week about the ways in which his death is so completely different than my mother's. They died within 24 hours of one another. And yet I had always come to expect that I would learn this news about my nephew and that in some ways, I haven't been able to properly openly grieve or mourn his death because I'm quite embarrassed by the news. And I find myself feeling shamed about not being able to help him. And so I started doing some research on the complicated nature of death when someone dies from a substance abuse and what it leaves for those who love that person. And I thought I'd have Dr. Polo walk us through some of the considerations. Hi, Dr. Polo. It's so good to see you. Sheila, it's good to see you too. And first of all, I just want to say I'm really sorry. Loss is so very difficult, particularly when it comes back to back. So I'm, I'm sorry about the loss of your mother, as well as the loss of, of your nephew. I'll share with you, and, and actually, I think you may already know this. Uh, I also lost a parent just, uh, gosh, just three weeks ago. Yeah. It wasn't uh, by COVID, and it, and it wasn't by addiction. But loss is just something that's very hard on all of us. And so it's a really important topic to talk about. I have been so fascinated by the internal dialogue that I'm having with my mother. I was very open with my friends. I uh, posted on Facebook and received thousands of well wishes from people. Um, There was almost a community mourning that helped me grieve her loss. With my nephew, there is so much stigma surrounding heroin abuse, and so much stigma surrounding his illness that I don't even know how to talk about it, Dr. Polo. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're touching on something that's called disenfranchised grief. And what that basically means is it relates to the societal expectations of what you should be grieving or to what degree you should be 
grieving. So I'll give you a very simple example. When somebody loses a parent that is elderly, let's say 85, we in our minds say to ourselves, well, you know, they lived a long life and they did many things and they should be grateful. They, they lived past the average age of life. And we just kind of assume somebody's grief should somehow be proportional to that versus somebody maybe that lost a child that was only four years old to cancer. And we have the kind of societal expectation that this now should be grief that is much worse. So here's the reason why that's important. When it comes to substance use, when it comes to folks that have addiction, there's first of all the stigma. Hey, these people were bad people because they did this to themselves. Right. And society kind of gives you in some ways, feedback that makes you now feel like your grief is somehow less important because of the person that died. And I want to talk openly and honestly about this, that addiction is really cruel. And the behaviors of people who are addicted are very tiresome. Our nephew stole from us. He lied to us. He found himself in jail because of his need to try to get money for his addiction. He did things that were so opposite of the person I know who was a sober young man that I am also left with this recalling those moments rather than remembering my loved one in those moments where he was joyful and so funny and so handsome and such a beautiful young man. And I am having trouble with that. And and let me ask you a question. You're usually asking the questions. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Why do you think you put up with the lying, the stealing, all the things that he created? What's the one reason that you were willing to put up with it and continue to, to offer? Yeah, well, I think all of our family feels this way, that we loved him so deeply. You loved him. Right. And and that's the key here. Yeah. When we really care about people, we do anything to help them. Yeah. And consequently, when we lose them, that pain is really great. Mm. And when you have addiction as part of the picture, particularly if you've had a complicated relationship where you've really been trying to help them, you sometimes get angry at this individual. You know, if they had just done this or if they had just done that, if they had followed my advice here, and then you can also get angry at yourself. Well, if I had done this instead, or maybe I should have done that. I mean, all of that is is really part of trying to figure out how to struggle with the loss. This person's not there anymore. You know, Dr. Polo, my daughter um, was saying, I find it so interesting that there is so much data and so much science around the proof that addiction is a disease that we know it. We can see it now in the brain pathways and the neural pathways. We know what happens to people. We call it illness. We have a designation for it. Insurance covers the treatment for goodness sake. And yet when someone dies from this addiction, the response is completely different than when someone dies from cancer or heart disease. I want you to talk about that a little bit because is it just the lack of public information that's out there to change people's minds about how we view addiction? It's a great question. I do think it's a combination of factors, one of which does include individual perceptions. Addiction is a disease. And clearly, we have science that demonstrates why some folks are more susceptible to potential addiction than than others. We also know that addiction can be uh, something that folks can recover from. 
but it requires a tremendous amount of support. It requires people, it requires systems, it requires many things to help people get through that. And I think what happens is that each case is individual, but at the end of the day, there's always that nagging thought when you're not the addiction, when you're not the person with the addiction, there's always that nagging thought, well, why can't they just snap out of it? Why can't they just not do it? You know, what is wrong with them that they don't see the downside or, or the potential effects? And, and ultimately, there are a lot of people that say, well, it's just really about behavior. And in fact, we often refer to behavioral health as people that just need to change their behavior. Yeah. It doesn't work with addiction that way. Uh, it never has. Yeah. It's never going to. It's fascinating to me. I've never really liked the term behavioral health. It doesn't seem to, <laughs> to grasp how complex everything is because it does suggest that you could just change the behavior and everything would be okay, you know? Correct. When there's so many circumstances that surround this. And one of the other complications, and I'm sure this is quite true for people whose loved ones have been in the criminal justice system is when a person who dies from opioid abuse dies, there seems to be kind of a lack of interest to finding out why, who sold yeah. them the drugs, what were the last hours of their life like, what does it mean? And, and I talked to one of the law enforcement officers, he said, we find 200 bodies a day in this country from OD. You want us to spend our time trying to figure out what happened to these people when there are, you know, kidnappings and violent crimes going on. And I thought about that, how it doesn't allow the family members of these people to form a cohesive narrative about yeah. what went what went down. You Why know, now? My, what's my, interesting my nephew, about what I've been clean for four months. Yeah. Why what, now? What, what what's interesting about what you're saying is the reality that addiction usually creates more than one trauma. Yeah. It creates trauma for the individual that's suffering, and if that individual happens to overdose, whether accidentally or by choice, yeah. it leaves a, a whole set of victims behind them that, that struggle with their own sense of grief and loss, but also how the community looks at that situation. You're implying, and I, I think this is what you're probably thinking, is that your nephew's death was not looked at as being important enough for anybody to investigate. Yeah, And that's got to be painful yeah. because he was a loved individual in your family. Yeah. It's all, I, I think also the death of someone from opioids really, to me, points out just how powerful this drug is in eliminating potential, in killing off some of our brightest, most sensitive young people. Yep. I, I often think about him as a young man. He just had, he's, his test scores were way off the charts. His humor was way off the charts. His beauty was off the charts. And the first time he used, it was over. It was yeah. almost like the rest of his life became drug court and rehab. What, what and we will typically see is, um, in some folks, is an individual that has some kind of a sports injury. Uh, they go through a complicated period of recovering from that injury that includes being prescribed painkillers. Yeah. And unfortunately, we know that about 8 to 12% of those folks go on to be addicted to those yeah. painkillers. And the painkillers all by themselves can cause a challenge with addiction and overdose. But our approach in terms of limiting that also has pushed some people to say, well, where can I get a substitute for this? And so 
the substitute that a lot of folks will turn to is heroin or yeah. fentanyl. And it just becomes a spiral that's very difficult to overcome. Well, you just described what happened to him because he was training for a snowboarding competition when he broke his leg. And you just, you know, your data just completely seals the story of what happened to my nephew. If there is any advice that you could give for someone who is having difficulty as I am sort of finding a proper way to, to really mourn this person's life and the potential of, of who he was being gone, what, what would you say, Dr. Polo? You know, I would say a few things. Um, the first thing I would say is you should feel empowered to still love and grieve the person that you know you lost, the true person that you lost. Don't go looking for blame. You don't want to blame the person and you don't want to blame yourself. Addiction is a disease and unfortunately it had a bad outcome and it's okay to grieve the fact that you've lost somebody regardless of what society thinks. You think that given the data that we're seeing that there are increases in overdoses right now, and especially with COVID quarantine, people's inability to cope has just increased this, you lay on the fentanyl coming into our country, and we're going to see a, a real problem with the number of people that are impacted by this trauma, that there are going to be more perhaps resources for families who've lost someone to substance abuse? Yeah, this is a tough one. And I'll tell you why it's a tough one. We know that so many folks are struggling with anxiety and, and stress related to just the pandemic in general. In the middle of the pandemic, we have all kinds of things, hurricanes, wildfires, et cetera, so on and so forth. And prior to all of that, we've already had a challenge with substance abuse that's been going on for decades. When folks are stressed, when folks are anxious, when folks are depressed and upset, they sometimes go looking for things that will somehow make them feel better. And for many folks, that's drugs. It can be alcohol. It can be opiates. It, it can be all kinds of drugs that people will use, both prescriptive and non-prescriptive. And so I do feel that we are probably going to be entering a period of increased stress for many people and by default, increased risk folks that might go down that pathway. Mm -hmm. And for folks that have been through addiction, and in recovery, they're at risk for defaulting to old habits, you know, ways that made them feel better that sometimes are attractive enough to try again, unfortunately. Realistically, we're, we're ending this series after talking with so many people with success stories. I mean, it was so heartening for me, especially to hear people who've gone on to themselves be alcohol and drug counselors and, and them talking about this miraculous way that life opens up for you when you're not beholden to a drug. But what are the statistics about recovery being successful long-term? And how can we improve those so that people have a better chance at maintaining their recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know what the actual numbers are by today's standards. Here's what I do know. Recovery is hard, but it requires the right environment that includes support from loving people. Nobody recovers from addiction all by themselves. It just doesn't happen. So, you know, for the individual that is struggling with addiction and wants to change, I usually encourage them to lean on the folks that they know love them and want what's best for them. And for folks that are struggling with somebody that is addicted, I remind them, this is a disease. They need your love 
They need your understanding. They need your acceptance. And you're going to have to let go of some of your anger relative to their addiction because what they really need is for you to be there for them. Yeah. So sadly, so many people, and I think um, I was asked once by this officer, like, how could anyone who had someone in their family who was addicted to heroin, let them go and live in a tent. But there are so many family members who, who just get to the point where they're like, it's going to be him or me. Yeah. I, I, I can't yeah. take another midnight phone call. I can't go to the police. You, station you, another, you know, you're, you're touching time. on, you're touching on my personal experience. I, I have a daughter who, who was involved with, with uh, drugs, not, not opiates. It was methamphetamine. And there was a very dark period of time where, I was exhausted as a parent. I didn't think my heart could be broken anymore. I was waiting for that phone call yeah, where somebody would call me and say, your, your daughter's been found dead. And I could finally like let go. I could, mm-hmm. I could finally be relieved of that anxiety and tension. And my daughter actually recovered and I'm way past that. And she's a wonderful mother and she's got a profession and she's, she lives just down the road from me and I've got a great relationship. And I sometimes feel guilty that I had those feelings. You know, how, mm. how could I have those feelings? That's how powerful this is. That's exactly how powerful addiction can be. Well, I want to um, end with the hope and the, the new life that she's brought into the world for you, because if you can live in recovery it is, as so many people in this series have said, it becomes almost more magical than a normal life because you do realize how close to death you were living before. And Dr. Polo, your work with uh, Fora Health has just inspired me so much. If there is any more that I can do for you or our people at Fora Health, please let me know. Thank you, Sheila. As always, It's shows like this that help encourage folks to know you're never alone and it's okay to ask for help, even when it's emotional. And that was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. I hope you make it a great day. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.